Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is the History Voyager Podcast. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is an episode I have wanted to record ever since I've been wanting to talk to normal people. Back when I was doing my podcast on the Spanish flu and I was learning about COVID with the rest of us, I was looking at that and I was remembering my years in college and I was thinking, you know what? COVID-19 is going to run wild through a college campus. And pretty much it has, as you're going to hear in this episode. I speak with Liza. Liza is the co-chair of Jade, as well as the University of California Disabled Students Association. Liza needs our help. The University of California, Berkeley, is not... They have basically, if I can be honest with you, two sets of rules. They have one set of rules that they tell the world that they essentially, through their medical school, give to planet Earth and say, this is how you need to uh, behave and act, and, and not just behave and act, but this is what it takes to get through COVID. On their campus, they have a whole separate set of rules, and that set of rules necessitates in-person school. And if you're somebody like Liza, who's disabled and has a a lot of pre-existing conditions that COVID could run wild with. You want to stay away from people. Liza wrote all this in a bunch of tweets on Twitter that went viral several weeks ago, and I happened to see it. And I got in touch, and basically, Liza came on my podcast and drilled down basically into what's actually going on in their life and pretty much I'm happy to release this podcast and I'm happy to try and raise awareness of not just for Eliza but for the disabled people on on the campus of Berkeley and probably also in other California schools. You know, and this is probably, I want to hope, is some kind of oversight that the school administrators are doing um, I'm on academic Twitter, and so I, I see, basically on academic Twitter, I, I see the uh, foolishness that a lot of school administrators are hopefully unwillingly, or unwittingly rather, engaging in. But, you know, when it comes to a student who basically has their health is very much um you know very very much affected by covid because of pre-existing conditions you know i get it i get that you know liza wanted the whole world to hear about this and so i have a podcast in the top 10 percent of podcasts in the world and Basically, you know, I use that platform to boost authors and comic books and some other podcasts even. 
and I thought, well, this is useful. This this would be a, a good thing. Um, you know, the my Jewish friends would call this a mitzvah. And, you know, I'm just out here trying to help. I'm trying to raise awareness of, of COVID in general and also of the human condition. So this, this to me is the mission statement of a history voyager, if, if there is such a thing. Uh, Apple seems to think so. Um, so do other people. But hey, I wanted also to to let you guys know about um, there's a couple more variants of COVID, Mu and Lambda. I'm going to have a podcast on those two other variants very soon. I also wanted to extend basically a an invitation to any school administrator who wants to come on, especially in California, now that we've highlighted California here on the History Voyager, um, to come on and explain why it is you have one set of, you know, regulations for outside of your campus for the rest of California to um, adhere to, and you have basically another set of regulations for inside your campus. And in some cases, you're actually telling people uh, to do the opposite of what the outside the campus people want to do or, you know, need to do. All right. Um, And also, I want to talk about how big this is, how big of a story this is. So... In virtually every major American city, colleges are the third, fourth, or fifth highest employer in that major city. So if you think about the downtown areas and a lot of downtown areas all over this country uh, had college students in them. And if you think about, you know, Liza even says that a lot of these people are are suffering in silence and and that goes especially true for the disabled people but a lot of the college students might also be suffering in ignorance because California for example still has regulations or recommendations for its students as though we're living with alpha covid and we're not we're we're in delta and you know, pretty soon we'll be in Lambda and, and Mu, probably. Um, but COVID has gone from something that you get after 15 minutes of exposure with Alpha to something that you get with seconds of exposure with with Delta. And, and you know, God knows what it is with Lambda and also Mu. And I think you're going to hear in this podcast, you're, you're going to hear me talk about how I think the breakthrough cases are going up, and I think that's fueled by Mu, and I think it's fueled by Lambda. And anyway, I want you, whether or not you have a student in college or not, to share this around, hopefully with people in California, 
so that somebody can help this young person and people, you know, in a similar situation. For as big as this story is, and it is, because, let's face it, Lambda and Moo coming into a community is a pretty big story. And also the fact that apparently the, basically the, you know, Berkeley is saying one thing to the general populace in California and doing something else with their own students. As big as this story is, um, the, the request is pretty simple. All Liza wants at the end of the day is to be basically considered as far as, you know, wanting to have classes basically distance learning and things like that and to be out of the in-person mandate that Berkeley seems to have now the thing I've got to say is frankly businesses all over the country are moving to a work from home model and why can't universities do that well I know why they can't and the reason they can't is they, they have come to see, you know, college students as customers. And this economic model really only works if the students are learning in person. And I think COVID, for a lot of people, has shown the way things are and that things need to change. And if it needs to change under Delta COVID, then it really, really needs to change under Moo and Lambda COVID. And I've already said this, but I'm going to include in my podcast feed pretty soon an episode in Moo and Lambda COVID, just like I did with Delta. And the reason I'm doing that is Liza describes a breakthrough uh, caseload in the second recording because this recording fortunately as it turned out took place over two days well in the second recording Liza describes uh, numerous breakthrough cases and also on my own social media feed I've got evidence of numerous breakthrough cases so I'm really thinking that Lambda and Moo have arrived on the scene. Um, anyway, this podcast was very humbling to, to do, and it, I, you know, it's an honor. It's an honor to help people, to help humanity, really, and to, to it's an honor to help people, help humanity, at least the English-speaking portion of the internet community on this planet sort of kind of navigate our way through through a plague. All right, so with that in mind, this is episode 146 of the History Voyager, a podcast about history. Okay, I'll see you guys later. And uh, I got some episodes in the can, but I figured this one was super important and needed to be bumped ahead of the line. All righty, folks. I'll see you guys later. Okay, bye. This call is now being recorded.
Hi, I'm here with Liza, and uh, we're going to talk about her, I guess, her COVID situation. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Liza Mamedov-Churchinsky, and I'm a student at UC Berkeley. I use they them pronouns, and um, yeah, you reached out to me just probably from the Twitter thread I made about what's been going on since schools have been reopening. Um, and I, I'm really okay. glad that... Oh, sorry. Yeah? No, I was saying, okay, like, um, so you're glad to come on the show and... I'm sorry, continue. No, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, want to talk with people about what's been happening since the schools have been reopening and the impact on students and, you know, students' health, mental health, socializing, just impact mm-hmm. in every single category, and especially for disabled and high-risk students like myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So I talk about COVID in my podcast. Um, so let's back. let's back up a bit. So when when did you become aware of COVID? Um, actually, I had a friend who was in Wuhan in January, and I remember she was there in the epicenter when COVID was just starting. But she okay. was telling me about how all the schools shut down immediately, and um, you know they they went into full quarantine, and that she was able to stay safe because of that. And she came back to the U.S. And over the next month or so, we started hearing about COVID here, um, which was really interesting because I I thought it was just like, you know, a one-off story that I heard based on my friend's travel. But I became, you know, very much more aware of it at the beginning of March. That's March of uh, 20. Yeah, March 2020. Okay, okay. All right. It's hard to believe we've been dealing with this for as long as we have. I know. I I still feel like I'm back there March. <laughs> In so many ways, uh, you know, 20 is the month is the year that didn't happen. Mm. And in a lot of ways, you know, I'll, people always pop off. You know, July 2020 was a hell of a decade. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> That's right. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, alright. So, okay. So, how did you, I mean, were you, um, how was your, your college situation? Have you said where you go to school? Do you, do you want to say where you go to school? Or? Yeah, yeah. I go to UC Berkeley. Before that, I attended Central College and the end of college, so I was a community college transfer in fall 2019. Okay. All right. Okay. So you, okay. So how was your college um, learning experience and whatever else uh, in the, in 20, like in the, from March or February or whenever? And, like, where is the line, basically? Where is the line from 
from the COVID situation, the, the COVID experiences that we all think about when we think of COVID experiences for what we're dealing with now, where, you know, there's lots of people in my state that never thought COVID was real at all. Right. <laughs> what state are you in? I'm in Georgia. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I'm in Georgia. Well, yeah. <laughs> Atlanta is yeah. a, is a blue 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 blueberry and like a blueberry tart and a rather large bucket of tomato soup. Mm. So <laughs> right. So do you mean at what point you know I kind of noticed it or um, so you know okay yeah so let's all right so for the purposes of dating I, I know you don't. You might not remember. The only reason I know this is because I have a podcast. Um, So the NBA closed up on March 14th of 2020. So in the minds of a lot of... Yeah. I have that date memorized. So in the minds of a lot of Americans, that's when the pandemic started. Mm. All right. So... Was what was, I guess Foothill or Berkeley? What was yeah. Berkeley doing um, before that, then, like in January yeah. to March? In was, January and February, it was just going on exactly as normal, even until I don't remember when we actually got the date that classes became online. It might have been a couple of days after that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, everything was, I had never if heard about COVID coming to the U.S. or, you know, if my friend hadn't been in China at the time, I would have never known what COVID was even, um, to begin with before March. And obviously that's so sick because we knew, we know now that, um, the state has known about COVID for a long time, even before January, and um, nothing was done in terms of preparing people or putting any policy in place to prevent yeah. the you know, mass massacre that happened after that. Well, actually, um, in this, why the media doesn't why the media doesn't make this more public, I don't understand, but. Um, so COVID itself was interpolated into a it was sort of hailed into existence, uh, if I can use a graduate school term. Mm. Um, so it was it was discovered basically. Let's say that it was discovered in two thousand and two. Oh yeah, and yeah, I mean COVID nineteen specifically, but right. yeah, of course. Yeah, so the COVID family of diseases had been killing not a lot of people, honestly, right up until uh, the latter part of 18, going into 19, going into 20. Uh, and then suddenly it just, you know, exploded. Why the media doesn't talk about that more, I, I don't understand. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. I mean that. Yeah, I mean that just shows you know it, it's it's not just about COVID nineteen. It's about the fact that 
the state has never had any response to a mass disabling event. Like we've never had a plan around that. Um, well, we well know. we actually we actually did um, the the United States did. I don't know about California. Mm. Uh, the United States did, um, but that was well. That was put in place by Bush after he read. I can't remember the name of the book, but he was giving this book for Christmas. I had to read it for my deep dive on the Spanish flu. Mm. And he was freaked out by it because it's freaky. Right. <laughs> so he put that in place. Um, but yeah. hey, let's get, let's get to your personal experience here. So. Yeah, no, uh, just, just as a last point on that, I mean more like the impact that it takes on disabled people and oh, sure. how to, how to protect, you know, oppressed groups, thinking even back to the AIDS epidemic, like they you know, people like myself in these high-risk categories have just are usually left on um, the last step of the plan, and yeah. that's really had an impact on a lot of us and on me, especially in the context of school. So, how does it have? Tell me about how COVID impacts your uh, the more. Um, tell me about how COVID impacts or the the COVID situation or whatever impacts your your existence or your daily life or whatever? Yeah, well, th- I mean, that's a big question. I feel like I almost don't have an existence beyond the okay. way that I'm impacted by COVID. Um, can you can you be more specific? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll get into that. So, okay. um, I mean, there's, there's two different aspects, uh, maybe three different aspects in the way that COVID has really been impacting me. The first is okay. housing, and I'll get into each of them, but the first is housing, the second is school, and the last one is um, relationships, like people, friendships, social life, and things like that. So on the question of housing, in, in March of 2020, I was living in a co-op um, near Berkeley, so it was cooperative house with, uh, I don't remember, maybe 60 people. And we were all living there together, and it was an incredible place where, you know, um, we owned the property. It was a cooperative, so our rent was very low, and we had a communal kitchen and things like that. But when the pandemic hit, that was my first experience and what is now a very constant experience and in learning that, um, you know, people that I was friends with, people that are um, advocates and organizers, allies, whatever, activists, were not really going to be there for me um, after the pandemic hit. So, you know, as soon as we knew that this was something that was spread from person to person and that we had to take precautions, it took me until the end of March when the pandemic was really, really roaring um, for this co-op to take it seriously and for me, for my, you know, begging and pleads to be taken seriously to stop having parties to stop having random people over to be able to wear masks that was really really fought against and it made me housing insecure i lost my housing because i just couldn't live there anymore it wasn't safe for me and i probably moved in from 2020 at that point 2021 i think i've moved 
seven or eight times, all because of uh, the pandemic and being high risk and many different situations like this. So that's, yeah, the first way. I mean, if we want to talk about that, that's Uh, really, really impacted my existence, yeah. When you you say you're high risk, uh, you keep Mm -hmm. saying that. In what way are you high risk? Yeah, totally. So um, I have a couple of disabilities that put me in the higher risk category, putting me at higher risk of infection and higher risk of uh, permanent disability and or severe hospitalization, death, et cetera. Um, but mostly the most concerning thing I'm worried about is, you know, severe hospitalization and severe disability mm-hmm. after the fact. So I have an autoimmune disease. I have... Um, asthma affecting me every single day. I also have a chronic pain condition and then, you know, neurodivergency like ADHD um, and a number of other conditions that are, you know, smaller, not related. um, Okay. But still impacting me, yeah. Now, let me ask you this um, because I'm going to, I'm going to push this podcast out uh I'm, I'm kind of on what they call academic twitter mm-hmm. so i'm going to push this podcast out and there's some professors uh so this co-op uh is this in any way connected to uc berkeley yeah it is it's called the berkeley student cooperative um i lived in that specific unit of the co-op and then I moved a couple of times, and then I came back to the co-op system in fall of 2020. And I lived in the largest co-op um, throughout that system from fall 2020 to spring 2021. But it's just up in a free house, so there were a number of reasons why I chose that place. And now I'm in a different co-op that's a lot smaller, but I'm still within the co-op system, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Um, once we, okay, pretend you're not talking to me. Pretend you're talking to somebody who can do something for you at Berkeley or, or wherever. Right. What mm-hmm. What do you want? Well, yeah, what what I want is really pretty clear. I want them to, I want the university to actually assess where we are in the situation and uh, actual public health-oriented and health as a baseline perspective. So acknowledging that asking and demanding students and staff to risk their lives and choose between our lives and education is beyond unreasonable, dangerous, um, murderous, really, and acknowledge that there are financial reasons why they want everything to be back in person. They want students back in housing. They want football games to be happening. Um, you know, they want people paying their full tuition. That's not a reason to run a science experiment on the student body that's 42,000 people, not even considering the number of faculty and staff. Um, considering that one in three people get long COVID, which has been 
categorized as a disability under the ADA. And beyond you're that, talking, the number of... You're talking yeah, about with sorry? Delta. I'm sorry. You're talking about yes. with Delta. Yes, okay. yes, with Delta okay. and okay. long COVID. Um, and beyond that, you know, the, the number of students that will necessarily die because of this is unacceptable. No student should be sent to their death just for wanting an education, just for wanting okay. to complete their degrees. They're putting us in a situation that um, is very black and white with no middle ground. I can say more about that later in the conversations I've been having with the administration and other people have been. But what I want is just an equal, reasonable accommodation. So I want equal online and in-person classes so I can have the informed consent of choosing okay. the safety you, risk. I'm, yeah. All right. Just really concisely. Can you tell me very concisely what is happening now versus what you want to happen? Yeah. So at Berkeley currently, um, they have returned to classes in person. There was, there is a very, very small amount of classes that are offered remotely. The policy is any classes that are over 200 people must be offered remotely, but classes that are 150 people, for example, are totally fine to be in person. Um, there's only one class in my department that's offered online, and there's a handful of classes that are, you know, lower number of students that are still online for people that are um, in high upper division courses that, you know, no longer take lectures that are that big. But campus right. was allowed to fully reopen. Um, with no gradual phasing in of anything, on the very first day, all 42,000 students, um, or most of the 42,000 students, all showed up on campus. Um, there was no testing requirement. The requirement is everybody must be masked, and everybody must submit a vaccine card. But it's easy to have pe- to be... Um, opted out of that and they've already said they don't have the enough they don't have enough people to be verifying everyone's vaccine status. And I've already seen right. from friends that, you know, the way that Berkeley is built, a lot of our buildings are very old. So mm-hmm. they're extremely big lecture halls. They don't have any windows. There's no ventilation. There's been photos and my friends have been telling me that, you know, there's these lecture halls with a hundred plus people and every seat is full. People are sitting elbow to elbow. People are even sitting on the ground because there's not space. And there's no windows. There's no ventilation. The professors aren't wearing masks. The students aren't wearing masks. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of where we're left. And there aren't really options for people like me or people in general that just don't want to risk um, getting COVID, either for themselves or, you know, if they're living with mm. their grandparents or kids for, for really any reason, there's, it's not a choice. Right. We've decided this is black and white. It's either fully online or fully in person. Yes. Uh, I understand. Um, okay. So what you want is you want, you want to be able to have your classes online. Yeah, I, I just want a shot at completing my degree and okay. having an education just like anyone else. Um, 
Let me and, ask you this, mm-hmm. um, because I can already hear as an, well, I'm, I don't want to say like I'm taking up for them, because I'm not. Yeah. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. What I can, I can already hear it from their perspective. What's her major? <laughs> so what is your major? Is, is this possible? To, to do online. That kind of thing. So what is your major? My major is rhetoric and anthropology. I understand that there's, you know, difficulties in doing things like lab practicum online, but I'm speaking just for myself in a major that does not require people to be in person in any way. And, you know, I, I'm saying that I just want equal options. So I understand that there are some things that need to be in person. There are also a lot of people that, you know, because of neurodivergency for, or for any number of reasons, have been really struggling with online school and can't learn unless it's in person. So, you know, the, yeah. this, like, black and white, all or nothing, like, we can't accommodate both groups is a very, like, artificial scarcity of accommodations problem that the university has created. I don't think we have to choose either or. And in the option that does have in-person as an option, it needs to be taken seriously. Like, um, there need to be serious regulations around that. You can't have 175 people in a classroom for two hours, three hours, um, you know, people not wearing masks, no windows, no ventilation. That's just not okay. So there needs to be a serious rethinking and redesign of whatever capacity of classes are going to be in person. Yeah. Okay. Now, on your Twitter thread, Mm -hmm. you had said that you going to college, there are things that you get materially for your life that you wouldn't have if you didn't go to class. So there's an, there's like a carrot and stick incentive here. Yes. So yeah. can you go into some of that? Yeah. It's really what's putting me at the hardest place right now in the hardest position because, honestly, if I could, I would withdraw. I would take the semester off um, because it's, you know, they're not giving me a safe option. It's extremely traumatic to be put in a situation like this where they're not even taking disabled students into account at all. And, you know, to beg for something so simple for myself, it's really traumatic. But I have to because I'm reliant on the student health insurance, the insurance through UC Berkeley to get all of my treatment, um, all of my medication, all of my providers. This is the best insurance I've ever had in my life. And it's the only health care that I've ever gotten that actually treats me with respect and, um, you know, has found a lot of treatment for my conditions that I've literally spent decades trying to find. So if I withdraw, I'll lose my health insurance. I'll lose my financial aid refund, which helps with my housing. So, you know, it's like, what am I supposed to do? No, I, I I get it. I just wanted, I just wanted the people, somebody to hear that. Yeah. The state. I really hope they do. 
Um, yeah, it's okay. not just it's yeah. not just like the risk to health of the pandemic. It's also the risk to health if I choose not to attend either. Well, I mean, okay, so concisely, what you want, the desired outcome, is for you to be able to have your classes online mm-hmm. in a housing situation so you can be safe. Now, yeah. Does, cause I don't know, and I, I had a lady on my podcast. I haven't released it yet. I had a lady on my podcast that told me what the rent is in the Bay, in San Francisco. <laughs> is Berkeley in, Berkeley's in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, it is. It oh, is. okay, okay. Alright. My notion of California geography is a little shaky. I live in Georgia. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We're right next to Oakland. Okay, yeah. Right, okay. So, would it be possible... Would it... Would it be possible to take that refund and maybe find a accommodation anywhere that you could live by yourself? Um... Not with only that refund, absolutely not. But, you know, I, I mean, the Berkeley Student Cooperative is not, it's a nonprofit technically, and it's not directly managed by the university, but a requirement to be a part of the cooperative is that you have to be uh, a university student. And some of the various properties we have are leased to us by the university. So, I've actually been able to find a situation where I am living alone, but that's only been after a year and a half of really, really tireless, tireless work. And not just advocating for myself, but, you know, and a lot of people, though, a lot of people can't, are not in the position that I'm in. Um, Most people that I know, it's not just about cost. It's also about just, like, access like it's just it's really not possible here for someone to live alone except for my very specific situation because of the negotiation that I've had um people have four roommates six roommates you know they're sharing a room with three people there's also like the the actual university provided housing which is the dorm um in the dorms they're not requiring testing at all so that's an option for people. There's the frat, the yeah. sororities, and they're having parties every day, so that's the option yeah. that we have. Well, I mean, frat and sororities are going to have parties. They're just, they're, yeah, of course. I mean, unfortunately, and it's unfortunate, that, uh, because I've said this, I mean, a lot on my podcast, my friends, the people I talk to, just a lot. That the problem with COVID is that you don't die in public. When you die, you don't die in public. You know? Yeah. Like if it, if it was some disease where if you died in public in the day and age of Instagram, 
people would take this a lot more seriously. I'm convinced that. Yeah, because in the day and age of Instagram, in the day and age of whatever, you're filming somebody die. And your people are going to be like, oh, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. what what do I have to do? <laughs> yeah, you know? that, that's Honestly. so real. Honestly. And it's yeah. unfortunate that, I mean, it's unfortunate that that's what happens. And it's all, you know, and it's also unfortunate that we focus on the death. We don't focus on the disability because that's a lot more common. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Like I just read today for an upcoming episode, I just read about the study that was done that shows that COVID speeds along Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm-hmm. Like it, it'll speed it along in patients. Um, to where you can have a healthy patient develop Alzheimer's and or dementia and or dementia even from like very low grade COVID. So wow. yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I run the fifteenth most listened to podcast on COVID in any language, so I <laughs> I make it my business to know about COVID. You know? Right. Just saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm glad you're doing this. It's very important work. No, it is. It's. Uh, it is. It's, it's super important. But and I wanted to talk to you because I've been wanting to talk to college students, and you're basically the first one that I've talked to that I can actually somebody can point to and say, well, okay. COVID actually hurt this person. Right. Actually hindered their existence or hindered their life in some way. Or the COVID, yeah. um, I guess non-restrictions, <laughs> you know, the weird sort of, you know, I mean, and mm-hmm. I don't know. So, yeah. okay. I mean, so re- you're exactly right. In what way am I exactly right? Well, with what you're saying about the COVID deaths not being public and, you know, the fact that we can't really, or, you know, in your experience, you haven't been able to point to a college student that is, like, a face of what these policies um, do and how they harm us. It's it's a very much yeah. in, an invisible suffering. And, you know, for disabled people, that's very often the case, but... It's the same way that when the pandemic was first announced, everyone was saying, oh, but you're healthy, it's fine. Like, it doesn't affect healthy people. It only affects, um, you know, immunocompromised, high-risk, and elderly people. So all of those deaths became invisible. And all we focus on are, you know, it's only healthy people. Obviously, that's not the case. But um, yeah. still, you know, the people that are struggling and unable to work, unable to be in school, like, those aren't public stories. Um, you know, we're sitting at home in silence, honestly, pretty much. So what you're saying is exactly true. Like, if it was something that was so visible, if there was a way for me to visibly express how much pain I'm in about this, then things would be very different. But it's not. And all that yeah. goes into account is 
how much you care about people suffering or not and you know for how much you believe that matters well i also kind of think that part of the problem honestly is that I mean, I talk to folks all over the world, and mm-hmm. I, I listen to what they do in, in New Zealand and what they do in Australia, what they're doing in Canada and, and mainly in Europe and Great Britain. And the fact of the matter is, when you live in a country where so many people simply never believed COVID was real. Mm. You're never going to get that to happen. Right? That's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. But at the same time, there really ought to be some kind of a simple, workable solution where somebody who raises their hand and say, hey, I can't be around people because of because of this or that, um, you know, in a day and age where, you know, in a day and age where practically all of my neighbors work from home now, mm-hmm. um, why can't we do that with college? What, oh, what is, I, the, what, <laughs> you know what I'm I saying? I think I know why. Yeah. I know why. I know why too. But yeah. <laughs> let's, you know, let, let's get real. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's not hard. Like, it, it, it would not be hard for them to do this. It's not impossible at all. They've shown us for the last year that it is extremely very much possible. So, you know, these I questions mean, of, like, it's, oh, it's simply, you know, all the responses that I've gotten in the past um, when I've tried to get disability accommodations before the pandemic, when I've tried to ask about remote learning, because that's what I need for my disability, um, you know, for chronic pain, for flare-ups, for a, a number of reasons why it's difficult for me to be um, in person in class every day. And the responses I was always getting is, "There's, we have no way of doing this. There's, it's just not feasible. We ha- we don't know how to do that. And now it's well, been shown. They know. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm on academic Twitter, and I I, yeah. I think it's it's sort of incredible that you have professors talking about how, oh, we have to have our, our staff meetings and our, our faculty meetings have to be in person, or have to, I'm sorry, have to be over Zoom because it's not safe to come in. Mm-hmm. But yet, we have to have in-person school. That's so right. <laughs> and I, okay, I understand people that there are majors that you have to physically, like, you have to physically be in front of something. There, mm-hmm. there are some majors that you just do. You have to be in front of something. I understand that. But the ones that you don't have to do that, you should have to figure it out. People should figure yeah. it out. Um. You know, if you just take health and safety as the baseline, like you take protecting people as the baseline and ensure that, then you can work around those other situations to see, you know, with with specific situations um, that you create loops around, like those 
in-person things that need to be in person, whether it's science or art or whatever, if you start as health with the baseline, you can go and think about, like, okay, well, these things need to be in person, but does that mean that we're never going to test people? Does that mean that we're going to be in a very cramped, like, room capacity, 20 people has 30, 40 people in it? There's so many ways to explore that after you just have health as the baseline. Then you can get creative and think about all those things. It's really, what I really want for people to understand is it's not an either or. Like, it's really, it's really, really not. It's not all online, all in person, completely safe, completely unsafe. It doesn't have to be like that. And it would actually take a lot less work for people to, you know, come to a set of agreements about how much they care about people's safety or not, and then work on things that might contradict that to figure out a way to um, make those things still possible. And I, I fully, fully believe that it is. Right. I mean, what's so interesting to me is, like, to think about if this were cholera, Mm. Right? Because <laughs> we've had cholera yeah, in, the 20th, in the 20th century in this country. If yeah, this were cholera, we would have a different reaction. I'm convinced. Well, I mean, if we, if we think about cholera, like, you know, the way they were thinking about... Um, I mean, specifically in, in, in England, like, they were trying to find what it was. They thought it was, like, you know, like, odor and, and stuff like that. Um, they were trying to figure out the source of it. And then once they did, they saw that the way to get over that is to literally revamp the sewage system. Like, it took a transformational thing to the very structure itself to remove the thing that was unsafe, remove the thing that is disabling. And that was something that's so visual because you can literally see, you know, the the disgusting state that um, England specifically is where I studied this was in with their sewage system in the very direct way that that was killing people. But here we have the same thing, like it's a structural thing that needs to change. Um, in order what to stop disabling people. What, what do you mm-hmm. think needs to change? What would you say needs, needed to change? Well, that's the really hard thing, and that's the difference between COVID and cholera, is I as I mean, I will, under my dying breath, fight for as many accommodations as we can have and, like, as close to as possible for the vision in which disabled students and all students and staff are actually safe, but, um, you know, I I can talk about, like, my concrete plans and thoughts on that, but honestly, it's it's the fact that this society, America specifically, does not value the health of people, especially poor people, disabled people, elderly people, black, indigenous people, like, that is a very, very fundamental issue in the entire um, structure of every system that we're part of, that we're never going to actually find 
you know, true safety for disabled people if we're prioritizing profit over lives, which is exactly why this university reopening thing is happening. So, you know, it, it's kind of a two-pronged approach of short-term and long-term. Short-term, um, you know, we we need to be doing these things that I'm talking about in terms of making sure that tomorrow we're reducing transmission and tomorrow we're not killing our students, and at least informing students about what risks they're taking and, you know, stopping this thing that's giving students um, zero option, like life or death or go to class or lose your insurance, go to class or lose your housing. That's something that we can fix tomorrow. But in terms of the overall structural thing that needs to change, in order for COVID to be eradicated and in order for COVID to have been eradicated at first, because that's something we have to remember too, COVID did not need to go on as long as it has. We chose to make COVID a forever illness. There was, there were moments where we could have entirely shut down like other countries did and worked together globally to eradicate the illness and not have it be, you know, the mass massacre that it has been. But with the multiple reopenings that we've had, closing, reopening, closing, reopening, um, the unequal distribution of vaccines and things like that, we've made the choice to have COVID be like the flu, like something that's happening. Um, well, I think... likely not going away. Well, I think, first of all, um, I, you know... I think, first of all, the thing that needs to happen first is, and I think it will happen because I, I can already see it. Mm. I think that, so here's a little, let me throw a little statistic out at you that you might not be aware of. Um, most of the vaccinated people are actually the older folks. Um, are actually the older folks. Your age group is actually the least likely to be vaccinated, period, paragraph. Um, well, also, California, specifically, has had for decades now a robust anti-vaccine culture. I mean, I, I distinctly yeah. remember, distinctly remember having a, a podcast guest early in the situation uh, who said to me, I was never anti-vax. And, and the way in which she said it made me realize, oh, this is a topic of conversation in California in a way that yeah. it never was in Georgia prior to COVID. What I want right now is to have meetings with all of the administration to hear from disabled students, to hear from all students on the way that this is impacting us, to hear that people are not willing to risk their lives and people don't want to, um, you know, experience hospitalization or death or long COVID to take that seriously. Like, these are things that are going to affect us for the rest of our lives because of a decision made in fall 2021. People will be disabled for the rest of their lives, you know? or people will have family members that die, or themselves die. So I want us to, that's the very first thing, the very first thing that 
needs to happen is for all of us to be on the same page. Because we're not even, we're speaking two different languages. Like, um, some folks in student government have actually been having these meetings with administration, and they were begging for a phased uh, return to campus, so, you know, having, like, things online at, at first, phasing in when people are getting here, especially because a lot of people just moved in, like, they just flew in internationally or from other states and they're going to campus the next day. So there were conversations to beg the administration for a gradual reopening. And they said no. They said we've done everything we can. They said they allowed faculty and staff back onto campus in August, and therefore having students back on campus um, in the late of August is reopening gradually. Like, so, you know, we're really not even on the same page in terms of priority, in terms of what is considered safe, in terms of what is an acceptable risk. So that is the primary basis that we need to get to before we're having any other kind of conversation. And it seems like that seems to be the hardest part of it all because that is not um, where the administration is at. So. After that, only after we get to that place can we actually start talking details of what it means. And I'll get into that in just a second. Because, um, you know, a lot of it sounds complicated, but it's not really. And the things that do sound complicated um, can be worked on once we're all on that same page. So, concisely, you know, fundamentally what I want is I want to be able to complete my degree. I want to be able to be in the classes that I need to be in because there's classes that are only offered once a year. I want to be able to complete my degree on time. I want to stay in school. I want to learn. I want the structure of classes in my day. I want to be around other students. So that's all. That's what I want. I want to keep my health insurance. I want to learn. And there's a number of things that's needed in order for that to happen. Um, one being the option of remote classes. So if there's not remote classes, I can't continue my education. I can't keep my health in tune. I won't have the structure of classes in my life or engaging with other students. That's not safe. And also since I live in Berkeley, the community around me will not be safe because there's already been such a spike in COVID cases, even after only one week. So, okay. like we Can were I saying, ask you? Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask a question? Uh, yeah. I, ha I haven't asked you this question yet, and that's irresponsible of me. Hmm. Are, are you vaccinated? Oh, yeah, of course. I've had my third okay. vaccine. I've had the, the third one as well. Okay, you've met three of them. Yeah. All right. So let me. Okay, I'm sitting in front of Google. Mhm. Mm uh, as I always say on my podcast, Joe Rogan has Jamie, and I have Google. So let me <laughs> just let me just Google this right right off. Um. Let me go. Uh, 
All right, let's see. All right, this is from three hours ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, let me see if I have to pause anything because a lot of these videos autoplay. Um, okay, it says here, this is from, uh, hmm, this is from CBS, CBS News. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from CBS News right here. And the reason I'm saying this is because as soon as you said you vaccinated, because some people, um, aren't able to be vaccinated. For yeah, legitimate that's medical a huge issue. Okay. Yeah. So let me just, because these numbers change every day. You know, COVID, part of the problem is COVID so new that even the experts are learning about it in real time. Yeah. That's, and that's a huge problem, and I'm not denigrating that. Even a little. Um, but this is from three hours ago. Um, okay. All right. Um, okay. Um, Now, according to the study, um, cause here, here's what the yeah, but people are going to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, according to the, the study here, um, and show that more than 1.2 million adults who received the first dose, fewer than 0.5% reported contracting breakthrough infections two or more weeks after getting shot. Mm -hmm. Fewer than 0.2% experienced a breakthrough infection after getting the second shot. Um, Among those who did experience breakthrough infection, the odds of the infection being asymptomatic increased by 63% after... Okay, so according to, all right, that's CBS. All right, let me go back. And this is about Delta, right? This is Delta. Lambda Mm -hmm. is a different beast entirely, but we're dealing with Delta right now. Um, Yeah, I can can respond to what I think probably. um, Okay. You're saying the naysayers would say. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that, um, <laughs> just, here. Yeah, that, you know, I'm vaccinated, so I should be protected. If I just wear my mask, and, you know, a lot of students are vaccinated. That's true. And, you know, it is a very entirely different situation than we were in last year. It matters a lot. Um, and that we have vaccinations now, like, that's, fundamentally transformed the way that my life looks like. The position that I was in, you know, at the start of the pandemic is very different from the one that I'm in now because of vaccines. And I'm not saying that they're ineffective. I think they're highly effective and extremely important. Um, at the same time, you know, we are 
being, I don't think the term breakthrough is even um, the right way to describe things. Because it's not just happening, something that we've seen consistently happening with vaccinated people infecting other vaccinated people, unvaccinated people, infecting vaccinated people. It's not something that we can brush away anymore. It's something that is actively happening. And it's happening in the schools too. I've seen a number of professors how they got infected on the very first day of class, even though they're vaccinated and they've been wearing a mask. Just from my like personal um what's the word, sample size, I know and we've been talking about this, a lot of students that were infected and are now sick in the first week of class. So it's a question of, yes, we know that um, it's a different situation than it was before the vaccine. At the same time, we know that people that are vaccinated can still spread COVID. And that mm-hmm. means extremely drastic things for people who are high risk, for people who are elderly, for people who have children that can't be vaccinated, for any students, really, and staff, because there are still long-term effects, um, you know, the one in three of long COVID um, for people that do get sick. Yes, it has significantly uh, decreased the number of people who actually die from it, but people are still dying from it, and it's not an insignificant number at all. You know, the, the cases are still rising, COVID spikes are rising, it's not going down. It's actually only going up. So that's something we have to take into consideration. And that's a decision that we're making about 42,000 students, um, not even 30,000 students, 42,000, um, not including faculty and staff. Like, that's a huge number of people. And a lot of them might be unvaccinated. They live with people who are unvaccinated. Or they're, um, you know, they are vaccinated themselves, but they can spread it. And what happens when you put even two people like that in the lecture hall with 175 people for three hours? People are sitting elbow to elbow. Some people take off their masks. Even if they don't take off their masks, windowless room with no ventilation, 175 people, 100 people. That's not a risk we should be willing to take. We should not be willing to mass disable our students. You know, we're talking about a decrease in the amount of deaths that happen due to vaccination, but we're not talking about what happens when people are permanently disabled for life. That's still happening. And as you were saying, that can happen even from a mild dose, but in terms of higher, more serious disabling that's happening, that's not something that we can just brush away and say, that's worth it. You know, it, yes, like, not every single student will die, and that's a wonderful thing. At the same time, it's unacceptable to purposefully, I really feel like this is purposeful at this point, because they are willingly going into this knowing what will happen, to purposefully mass disable a population and force them into that. That's as serious to consider as anything else, you know, being permanently disabled, People are needing to have surgery around their spines. They're developing any CFS-like symptoms. A lot of people are, um, you know, like... What is it? It's extremely serious. 
What is oh, me, um, uh, whatever you said? It's, I'm forgetting the first two words of it, even though I have it. <laughs> but the, the last CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome, but it's not just fatigue, it's a very severe illness that resembles a lot of the long COVID symptoms. But, you know, yeah. people are also having heart, heart, um, issues, organ serving, like there's just no, no stopping of what we're still learning happens to people after COVID. So, yeah, I mean, that's my answer. My answer is that, like, I wouldn't wish that nobody was vaccinated, obviously. But even with vaccination, that is still putting this amount of students and faculty and staff and the community at large also. It's not just about people on campus. We have a very, very large unhoused population in Berkeley. Um, and, you know, they settle and they have curbside communities that are literally a block from campus because of the way that UC Berkeley is structured within the city of Berkeley. You know, there's a ton of people that are out on the streets that are not vaccinated. And these things also affect them. We are a city university. Like, there's no on-campus housing. It's within the city. So these things affect the entire community and not just students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing to consider, too, is that the testing statistics that we have um, through university health services are not accurate because there's so many people that I know that have COVID and they don't want to report it to university health uh, services because there is not a plan to deal with people who are COVID positive. Like what happens if you are sick and you can't come to class or you don't want to come to class because you're infectious, even if you're asymptomatic and you have to miss school for a week or a week and a half or two weeks, like what happens after that? Or if you're, you know, still experiencing symptoms a month later, there's people don't want to report what's happening to them because there's no plan to take care of students. And a lot of people are also, that means a lot of people are getting tested off-site. They're not getting tested at the university itself, which, you know, is not even an accessible option for a lot of people anyway. So we lose numbers there. We lose numbers in that there's no required testing for students in dorms. People are living together in, you know, huge apartments and sharing rooms with three, four people, there's no testing requirements. Like, it's really the snapshot that we're getting of the COVID case increase that we've already seen in only just a week. You know, people that I know that are saying they got infected with COVID this week, now they're positive, it's been, you know, a week. Um, One now thing I think... Positive. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. One thing I think we need to, we need to hammer down on yeah. is the fact that the initial, so for lack of a better word, uh, classic COVID-19, uh, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. was much less contagious than Delta is. Yeah. And just yeah. for example, somewhere like in my state, there was a kindergarten teacher who had COVID and who gave COVID to, I forget how many kindergarten children. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that that shouldn't have been able to happen. Like, 
Yeah. You know, you're, you shouldn't be able to give COVID to that many people. And yet here we are. Yeah. So we, we've entered into a new condition with that. Um, yeah, that's the primary thing that's also happening here is they, they the call it the, uh, yeah, the university the, has been working on their COVID reopening plan for a while, but they have not adapted anything to the changing conditions that we're now in. They have not yeah. adapted to Delta. Yeah. Right. Um, and what really I think you have to worry about is Lambda. I mean, yeah. what I've seen Lambda is, is really scary. And yeah. if that's going to require a new vaccine, Lambda, I think. Yeah. You know, and people are also flying in um, from all over the country, like, you know, the number of students that are actually from the Bay Area, like myself, is a tiny minority. Um, I've been in Berkeley this well, whole pandemic, but people are flying in internationally where there are other strains. People are visiting home. Like, there's just no plan for any of that. Well, like, Berkeley is, um, Berkeley is a research one school, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, research one schools get people from all over the place. I mean, that's just, that's just yeah. how it is. Um, students, there's faculty coming in, visiting scholars. Like, exactly. It's a very much international space. Exactly. Um... Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the problem is all of all of that I've discussed. But also, these are like verbatim words that I've gotten from people who are in negotiations um, with administration, people that are working with the labor unions, people that are working in student government. The university has just flatly said no. Like, there's nothing more they can do, and they have not adapted their plans. They made plans of how to reopen six months ago before Delta was a thing. They haven't adapted to the fact that Delta is more contagious. It spreads within seconds. You know, you can get it in 15 seconds. That's not what we were used to, you know, in terms of 15 minutes of close contact. Um, you know, if you simply stand six feet away from someone, even if you're unmasked or six feet away, like, it's just that's just not the reality we're living in anymore. And we shouldn't be pretending like it is. Right. Tell me how your life was before COVID as far as going to college. Okay. And what did college or what did COVID do, but not just from a a social experience, but from an, a, a standpoint of uh, what a college, what a university could actually wave a magic wand and fix. Okay. So, so like, maybe not your social life, but maybe, like, your whatever. Uh, um, your, so not your social life, but, like, your, um, allow you to live in a more, allow you to exist in a more safe right. environment in a COVID, uh, world. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, can, would you mind describing your disability, first of all? Um, 
Sure, yeah. I have MECFS and um, an autoimmune condition. I have asthma, fibromyalgia, and several other neurodivergent disabilities. Okay, and and how do these impact your life? Okay, how did these impact your life in a pre-COVID world? Yeah, so it it definitely had very serious impacts on me. I mean, I have very reduced mobility, um, and with ME-CFS, it's a very difficult condition that um, really limits my amount of uh energy and capacity to do anything really so sometimes I'll be able to get through the day and do you know my daily errands and go out and even see people and other times um, I won't even be able to lift my head uh, and turn it from side to side in bed so that's definitely something that was happening uh, in the pandemic and pre-pandemic as well as the asthma, fibromyalgia, etc. everything like that was definitely prevalent but it existed in a different context than it does now in the pandemic. Okay. Okay. In what context does it exist in the pandemic? Well, before the pandemic, it was something that I could manage, and in the good days that I had, I would be very fortunate, and, um, you know, it would fulfill my life greatly to be able to go out, see my friends, even attend doctor's appointments, um, be able to fulfill myself in being disabled, but enjoying my life and my daily activities outside right. and living as, as much of a normal life as I could and enjoying it. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing. Um, right. Yeah. But now obviously COVID is, obviously COVID has cramped everybody's style. Or the people who choose to believe COVID is real. Because uh, not everybody believes it's real. Um, so, but what, I guess what you're asking the college to do is basically, what are you, okay, what are you asking the college to do in your own words? Right. Well, I'm asking for just, you know, basic decency and respect as the first thing um, for the college to engage with and even listen to disabled students because in all of the communications that we've had from the college, disabled students have not been mentioned once. So that's just the baseline framework that I would want the college to communicate and engage with me from. But secondly, I just want a chance at the collegiate university experience that everybody else has in terms of education and safety, being able to be even on campus at all, um, you know, being able to study in the libraries, being able to see other students in class and engage with them in an online version, and just have the university education that every other student has and deserves. I want for myself right now fully remote learning because it's not safe for me to okay. go onto campus, but I want, okay. you know, I'm not saying it should be a black and white option, like I was saying before. It's something that I think needs to be seriously dealt with to consider the classes that do absolutely need to be in person, like the science classes, lab practicums, things like that. And for the classes that do absolutely need to be in person, or for, you know, there are some students that do not 
learn well online and need in-person classes based on their disability accommodations. So there has to be a middle ground where both populations are being accommodated. I yeah. absolutely reject that we can't do both. Um, but if we are doing any in-person component, it can't be anything like what's happening right now. It needs to be, you know, fully, fully science-based, fully cognizant of what COVID can do in terms of harming people, harming people that students might be living in with high-risk students and um, the very scary real fears of long COVID. Yeah. And how do you feel that uh, Berkeley is basing its COVID protocols at present? Honestly, it's really difficult to say because I don't think they have a COVID protocol at all. Um, they are functioning from a state that the pandemic has simply ceased to exist. And because students are vaccinated, everything is fine. And we've gone very honestly to an entirely pre-pandemic world here. And the university is over-enrolled, meaning there are more students on campus now than I even saw before the pandemic. So it's absolutely not living in any shred of reality. Um, you know, they they have no plan for what to do if a professor or a student gets COVID. There's been communication and um, what would happen if students and faculty got COVID from UC Davis and pretty much it's been continue going to class, think of a backup option, but there's, there's no choice to, you know, if a professor or a graduate student instructor gets COVID, there's no options for them. There's nothing that a student can do if they get COVID and they're unable to go to class. Like, there's penalties for that. Um, you know, we shut down the entire – we have a testing site at the Coliseum here, which is a major testing site, and it was shut down because of the football game this weekend, so students weren't being able to get tested. Um, asymptomatic testing is free, but if you have symptoms, you have to pay $100 to get tested. So, you know, what, what student would want to pay $100? to get tested. Mm. It's, just, mm. it's not something that is living in any, like, world of reality. Um, we've also been said that vaccinated students that are exposed to a positive COVID case should just continue going to campus and continue being in classes if they're asymptomatic, um, which we know is, you know, extremely hazardous, but COVID can still spread, especially when we're locked inside buildings that have no windows, no ventilation. Most of the classrooms here at Berkeley are not allowed to have our windows open. So, you know, whatever false ideas we had about going back to class in person, it's just absolutely not aligned with reality in any sense. Yeah. I wonder if I had a, a Berkeley administrator sitting with me, which I don't. But uh, right now, but I wonder if what they would say is, well, well we worked up, we worked up our protocols for for a COVID reality where young people weren't getting sick and dying, where uh, where uh, where for alpha COVID, basically, for lack of a better word, for alpha COVID, and now we have delta COVID. Mm -hmm. And you, you have Lambda COVID in South America, which is 
even worse than Delta. Uh, yeah, and now they're Yeah, and then I mean I should probably pull the the curtain back a little bit. Uh, so we time has elapsed that we recorded this two sessions, and yesterday was. For all intents and purposes, the, the opening day of college football in, in the U.S. And all those stadiums were full. And that's probably in 10 to 14 days going to cause some kind of an outbreak or whatever. Right. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening saw the videos from Virginia Tech, especially. Well, right. Or, uh, Let's see, Virginia Tech, or, or what was the other one? There was, there was another, I can't remember. There, there was another yeah. one where I'm just like, oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> oh I mean, even boy. the one here, the Cal football game, you know, it, it was yeah. horrible yeah. seeing all the students walking, and it, it was, it, I, yeah, I just haven't seen anything well, like it the whole pandemic. I think what, I think what some people are hoping is that they're really putting that whole, like, if you're vaccinated, you're safe to the test. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, yeah. All right. Yeah, but the, so, the thing is, um, you know, Berkeley has a vaccine exemption as well. You can request a vaccine oh. for religious reasons exemption. So there are unvaccinated students that are on campus and they're not required to get tested. And the same with staff, like it's, you know, and people live with unvaccinated people. There's parties happening on front row every single day. Um, You know, they don't check vaccine information. They don't have enough resources to go and check the legitimacy of everyone's vaccine uploads because you just upload a PDF and that's it. We're dealing with a new condition here for sure. Um, yeah, and the university has just not accounted for that. They haven't shifted or reassessed anything about their COVID protocols in the light of Delta. Like they're still operating on yeah. 15 minutes is close contact, um, six feet, which we know is just not true. Like it's, it's a completely different beast now. Those rules are not the yeah. same, the symptoms are different, the the spread is within yeah. seconds, it's not 15 minutes, you know, it's just a completely different reality that they're refusing to accept, and at this point, I don't think it's ignorance, like, this yeah. information, we all know it, the fact that you and I, you know, are not doctors, but we know this information, it's, well, it's a willful thing that they're doing. Probably, I mean, uh, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but... I can't, I can't read their thoughts, but what strikes me is that I have a, I have a friend who works in a very large organization, and, and that organization is not as large as, as Berkeley, I'm sure, but it's pretty large. And he, basically, they adapted where they could, you know, where they could, not everywhere, for sure, but... You know, there are plenty of people that work there that have to be in harm's way, and that's whatever, but where they can, they adapt. Uh, But, I 
mean, you would think you would think a, a, a college with a does Berkeley have a med school? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, all of yeah. this information we're getting is from the director of our university health services, and it just you know the specific doctors that I'm seeing, even the information on the um, on the website of the university health services completely contradicts everything that. Um, you know, the very political director yeah. that's informing the chancellor yeah. is, uh, you know, communicating. Yeah, you you would think, I mean, I would think, uh, as an outsider all across the country, I would think at least you would want to uh, follow the lead of your own medical school, but right. what do I know? I mean, what do I know? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Berkeley is a, you know, world-renowned research university. We have yeah. researchers that are working on COVID, and it absolutely contradicts everything that the school is doing, which is I mean, yeah. unbelievable it's, to me. Right. It is. And it's unbelievable to me that they haven't stepped in and nothing has been done, and we've allowed students to become exposed. In the, in the couple of days that it's been since we recorded the first part of this podcast, the number of people that I know that have gotten COVID just from one or two weeks in school has almost doubled. Jeez. I mean, you know, I can Google the the, the breakthrough percentage or whatever you call it. I call it the uh, uh, breakthrough COVID or punch through COVID where you're where you're double vaxxed and but you get COVID anyway. I can Google that and it's some pitiful. It's some little number, some tiny little number. But just entirely based on my Twitter and entirely based on people I know, I wonder how truthful that number is now. Like, I mean, I'm not one Yeah, these, I don't think it is. I'm not one of these conspiracy theorists at all. But just entirely based on my social media and just my own people that I actually know, I, I really wonder how truthful that that breakthrough COVID number actually is. Yeah, uh, I'm entirely with you. And the friends yeah. that I'm talking about, not a single yeah. one of them is unvaccinated. They are all vaccinated. Right. So, you know, the fact that even from my small, small, um, you know, survey yeah. population, if you will, all of them are vaccinated and they're all pretty COVID yeah. conscious. All they've done is go to class for two weeks and suddenly they all have COVID. This is not like a a one-off, very random, miraculous thing that only happens once in a million. It's, it's happening. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I think the word breakthrough isn't even sensical anymore because it's not something that's like, you know, so, so unpredictable. It's something that is reality. Like, this is happening. I do, you know, I'm not yeah. conspiratorial either in any sense, but... You know, we yeah. understand that COVID is a political issue in the same way that, you know, the university relying on science very, you know, skewed is a political thing. I think it, it makes sense that the yeah. manufacturers of the vaccines are American companies. You know, it, it's all of this is extremely politicized and I the university and the country, yeah. they want to do whatever possible to keep the economy open, and I think causing yeah. a scare about COVID is very antithetical to that. 
See, I was on. Um, yeah. See, I was on. Uh, I was looking at this newspaper article in, in Singapore because uh, I'm on the radio in Singapore or the television radio in Singapore, and mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at this study that the, I forget the name of the institution, but this major institution in Singapore was doing. And the thing that I wonder about is they were talking about Lambda. And what I wonder about is, I wonder if Lambda's in California. You know what I'm saying? Because like, Lambda, Lambda goes right over the, the vaccine, honestly. Like Lambda yeah. goes right through the vaccine. And the other things so. as well. And it wouldn't be surprising because, like I said, you know, in the last three weeks, the amount of students yeah. that were actually from the Bay Area is a very small minority. Yeah. Students have come from students and faculty and staff, and everyone has just traveled internationally from all over the world, other states. They've been in airports. Like, yeah. it's completely unsurprising that they've, if they have brought strains yeah. back here. Yeah. And it's not uh, being documented. Well, right. And also, like, when I studied the Spanish flu for my podcast, mm-hmm. um, you know, we in the 21st century, we, we tend to think, well, the world is on this You know, you can just Google it. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, I mean, if you're really talking about one person with Lambda coming in or, or whatever, and then Lambda spreads, or, or you know, or what if Delta mutated, or what if, what if a lot of things, right? <laughs> you know, like, um, and then chapter two of that is so I've been because of my podcast on COVID, I've been doing a lot of research into the into the uh, the, the horse paste that some people oh right right are taking the deworming thing yeah yeah. And that is just, I mean, the side effects of that is terrible. It's horrifying. Yeah. And to me, honestly, look, people, if you're going to choose between the horse paste and the vaccine, please choose the vaccine. Um, It's really heartbreaking because the U.S. has not provided any communication, any suggestions for at-home COVID treatment. So here there is a massive population that's terrified. Um, You know, they don't trust the government for good reasons, especially given, you know, medical experimentation on black people and all of of this. There's a good reason that, you know. And if you weren't like me, because I'm weird, I look at the numbers. If you weren't like me and you didn't know about the numbers, you would probably see that. But here's the deal. There's more African Americans as a percentage vaccinated than there are uh, Republicans. Well, yeah, of course. It it doesn't literally if if you're just looking at this from the Martian point of view, it doesn't make sense. It literally doesn't. I mean, it makes sense if you're an American and you get it, but I mean, Jesus. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely not saying that like. Black people are more yeah. likely to be doing this at all. I'm just saying that 
there are valid reasons for people to be displaced from the state, unfortunately. This is right, and this is the vaccines are real. They do work. They are safe. But you know, when you just completely crush trust and harm communities, give them absolutely no remedies for at-home COVID treatment, pretty much leave them for dead. It's not surprising that people are just turning to this stuff, which is horrific because it's deadly. It, you know, being unvaccinated well, kills so many more people around you. It's just, you know. Yeah. That's not yeah. the reason that everyone is doing it. I'm saying there are, you know, two different populations, yeah. people who are like right-wing, fascist, mm-hmm. like anti-vax, and then others who are not even necessarily right-wing. They're just a valid they might even just, I mean, they might, they might be a little conservative, but they might also, I mean, your, your Google, if you, so if you Google a bunch of spell like with me, right? With me, I'm always asking my phone what time it is in Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. I'm forever asking my phone what time it is in Singapore. So this morning I opened my phone up and my phone right there on top of Google News, it's all, hey buddy, this is what time it is in Singapore. Just, just so you want to know, <laughs> this is what time it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, hey, here's this, here's a restaurant in Singapore. Here's a this. So, like, your your Google search engine, like your Google search history, uh, is very, you know, user created. It's very like so. Right. If you're searching for uh, whatever the horse paste is called, right? If you're searching for that, you're going to get pro horse paste stories which yeah. is unfortunate. It's severely unfortunate, but here we go. Um, I mean, the, the other aspect of it, too, is, um, you know, all the medical articles that are coming out about real COVID facts are paywalled on, in all major newspapers. So, you know. Well, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, all the, all the true research, all the debunking, like all of that, you put it behind a paywall, like, you know, okay, right now here, I'm going to say this, people, I'm going to say this right here, right now, on all my podcasts, use Brave, download the Brave browser and use Brave, okay, there, I said it. Yeah, I use, I use DuckDuckGo, but, yeah. you know, all of it, DuckDuckGo is definitely better than Google, but at the same time, it's, you know, yeah, well, I use all... For that, I use Brave and DuckDuckGo, and it, you know, and if you do that, you know, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm, look, I know I'm throwing some, you know, whatever, I'm causing a problem for the media. Okay, I'm trying to save people. Here, <laughs> download Brave, set your browser, set your search engine to DuckDuckGo, and just do it. Just look. Okay, Eliza. Yeah. You have you have a. Uh, I want to I want to be cognizant of your health situation. Thank you. So so let's. Uh, you set up. Okay, I'm gonna sound like your big brother, and I'm sorry for that. Did <laughs> you set up your email address like I suggested? Yes. Yes, I okay. have all the contact information. The folks want to. Oh, okay. in contact with me. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope it's able to reach people 
if anyone's in a similar position to me or if there's any journalists, media, anyone else that would like me to come on and interview, speak to me in any regard. If there are any students from Berkeley specifically listening, I'd want them to reach out to, and, you know, then we'll put this in the podcast notes, the exact emails and everything, but it's Disabled Students Committee at ASUC.org, ASUC.org, Disabled Students Committee at ASUC.org. Um, okay. On Instagram, it's ASUC Disabled Students. Um, you know, this is the group working specifically at Berkeley uh, to be covering all these things. Um, I was recently appointed co-chair, co-undergraduate co-chair of UCJ, which is the UC-wide network for disabled students, alumni, and staff. Um, so if folks want to reach out to me about whatever they're experiencing at other universities, whether it's within the UC or broader, um, and especially if there's any journalists, any, um, you know, anyone that would like to contact me um, for any kind of media request, you can contact me at contactliza at protonmail.com. That's contact L-I-V-A at protonmail.com. And then my social media everywhere is on Twitter and on um, Instagram is at redpomgranat. So that's R-E-D-P-O-M-G-R-A-N-A-T. Thank you so much again. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Can I suggest that the Disabled Students Committee also has a Twitter? Um, Yes, we're we're really working on a lot right now, but it's, um, you know, it's within what's happening next. And folks should also Um, look out to what UCJ is doing. I will text you the email address for this podcast. I want you to send me all that in the email. Okay. Um, all right, Liza. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And this is going to come out. This is going to come out barring a power failure or something like that. This is going to come out uh, on. Well, I'm going to edit it tomorrow, which is Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, people of the, people of the internet, this is going to hit, people of the internet, this is going to hit on September 6th, on Monday, September 6th, so, alright, what were you going to say? Yeah, oh, I was going to say, um, off the record of recording that if you want to, oh, let me, okay, as always, folks, uh, have a good day. Hope you are too. Hang on just a second, please.